Section 5 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology, An Investigation of the Christian Teaching, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Wiener. Chapter 4, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. Chapter 4 1. Of the Essence of God Of the Essence of God? It was said that God is incomprehensible in His essence. Then it was said that He was a trinity. But I receive no reply to my answer and get a new problem. God who is incomprehensible in His essence will be disclosed to me in His essence. Quote, the question of what God is in his essence, essentia, substantia, natura, became even in the first centuries of Christianity a subject of especial attention for the teachers of the church, on the one hand, as a question in itself of great importance and close to the mind and heart of each man, and, on the other hand, because at that time the question was taken up by the heretics, who naturally provoked against themselves the defenders of orthodoxy." Unquote. Again, in order to disclose the truth to me, I am introduced to discussions and to the exposition of the opinions of this man and of that, and all of them are false and, quote, avoiding all similar finesses, the Orthodox Church has always held only to what it has pleased God to communicate to her about himself in his revelation, and not having at all in mind the determination of the substance of God, which it recognizes to be incomprehensible and, therefore, strictly speaking, indeterminable, but wishing only to teach its children as precise, exact, and accessible an idea about God as is possible, it says about him as follows, God is a spirit, eternal, all-good, omniscient, all-just, almighty, omnipresent, unchangeable, all-suffering to himself, all-blessed. Here it points out to us, in the first place, the incomprehensible essence of God, or nature, or substance, as much as it can be comprehended now by our reason, and, in the second place, the essential attributes by which this essence, or more correctly, God himself, is distinguished from other essences." Unquote. The essence, nature, substance of God is pointed out to us, and so are the attributes by which God is distinguished from other essences. What are we talking about? About a limited being or about God? How can God be distinguished from others? How can we distinguish in him substance, nature, and attributes? Is he not incomprehensible? Is not he higher and more perfect than anything? Less and less do I understand the sense of what they are trying to tell me and it is becoming clearer and clearer to me that for some reason they need inevitably, by rejecting sound reason, the laws of logic, 
conscience for some secret purposes they need to do what they have been doing until now to reduce my conception about god and the conception of all believers to a base semi-pagan conception here is what is said about this nature and about the attributes of him who is here called god Quote, the conception about the essence of god god is a spirit the word spirit indeed more comprehensibly than anything else signifies for us the incomprehensible essence or substance of god we know of only two kinds of substances material complex substances which have no consciousness or reason and immaterial simple spiritual substances which are more or less endowed with consciousness and reason we can nowise admit that god has in himself the substance of the first kind since we see in all his acts both of creation and of foresight the traces of the greatest reason on the other hand we are of necessity forced to assume the substance of the latter kind in god through the constant contemplation of these traces Unquote. in confirmation of these unintelligible perverse intricate words there are quoted the words of st john damascene which are almost as unintelligible and perverse Quote, by knowing what is ascribed to god and from that ascending to the essence of god we comprehend not the essence itself but only what refers to the essence just as knowing that the soul is incorporeal in quantitative and invisible we do not yet comprehend its essence just so we do not comprehend the essence of a body if we know that it is white or black but we comprehend only what refers to its essence but the true word teaches us that the deity is simple and has one action simple and doing good in everything Unquote. however painfully hard it is to analyze such expressions in which every word is a blunder or a lie every connection of a subject and predicate a tautology or a contradiction every connection of one sentence with another a blunder or an intentional deception it will have to be done it says spirit signifies substance spirit is only the opposite of substance spirit is above all a word which is used only as an opposition to every substance to everything visible audible tangible perceptible by the senses essence nature substance is only a distinction of perceptive sensual objects by their nature by their substance by their essence stones trees animals men are distinguished but spirit is that which has not the essence of nature what then can the words quote, spirit signifies substance unquote, mean further quote, we know only two kinds of substances complex material and simple spiritual substances unquote. we do not know and cannot know any simple spiritual substances 
because, quote, spiritual substance, unquote, is a mere contradiction. The plural number used with simple spiritual substance is another internal contradiction, because what is simple cannot be two or many. Only with what is not simple do we get distinction and plurality. The addition to the word, quote, substances, unquote, of, quote, simple, spiritual, more or less endowed with consciousness and reason, unquote, introduces another internal contradiction by suddenly joining to the simple concept that of consciousness and reason, according to the degree of which this something, which is called simple spiritual substances, is divided. The words, quote, to admit that God has in himself the substance of the first kind, unquote, to be consistent, ought to have been, quote, to admit that the one God is complex material substances, unquote, which is the merest absurdity, is an admission that the one God is a multiplicity of varied substances of which it is impossible to speak. The words, quote, we are of necessity forced to assume the substance of the latter kind in God through the contemplation of the works of his creation and foresight in which traces of the highest reason are visible, unquote signify not at all that God is a spirit, but that God is the highest reason. Thus, in examining these words, it turns out that instead of saying that God is a spirit, they say that God is the highest intelligence, and in confirmation of these words are quoted the words of St. John Damascene, who says a third thing, namely, that the deity is simple. What is remarkable is that the conception of God as a spirit, in the sense of opposing it to everything material, is indubitable to me and to every believer, and has clearly been established in the first chapters about the comprehensibility of God, and that cannot be proved. But for some reason this proof is attempted, and blasphemous words about the investigation of the essence of God are pronounced and the argument ends by proving that instead of being a spirit, God is reason, or that the deity is simple and has but one action. What is all that proved for? Why, in order when the need for it shall arise during an argument, to introduce the conception not of the one simple spirit, but of spiritual essences, more or less endowed with consciousness and reason, men, demons, angels who will be required later on, but more especially for that connection which the word spirit, which later will play an important part in the exposition of the doctrine, we shall soon see for what purpose. Quote, and if, indeed, the revelation itself represents to us God as a spiritual being, our supposition must pass over to the stage of an indubitable truth. Now revelation teaches us, indeed, that God is purest spirit, not connected with any body, and that, consequently, his nature is entirely insubstantial, not partaking of the slightest complexity, simple, 
unquote. From the words, quote, purest spirit, unquote, not connected with any body, it appears at once that the word spirit is no longer understood in the sense in which it is taken in all languages, not as it is understood in the gospel discourse with Nicodemus. Quote, the spirit bloweth where it listeth, unquote. that is, as a complete opposite to everything material, but as something that can be defined, separated from something else. Then Holy Scripture is quoted to prove that God is spirit, but, as always, the text proved the very opposite. Quote, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Everybody has a definite shape, and so can be represented. But God has no sensual form, and so the Old Testament strictly prohibited his being represented. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Isaiah 11, verses 18 and 25. Ye take therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 and 16. For the same reason everybody may be visible, but God is called the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15, 1 Timothy 1, 17, Romans 1, 20 whom no man hath seen at any time, John 1, 18, and 6, 46, and in particular, whom no man hath seen nor can see, 1 Timothy 6, 16, compare with Exodus 3, 18 through 23. Everybody being composed of parts is destructible and perishable, but God is the immortal King of the ages. 1 Timothy 1, 17 Unquote. It is not clear that God who seeth everywhere, who has spoken from the midst of the fire on Mount Horeb, who has no similitude, that is, no form, who is immortal, is a spirit. It is evident that it is necessary to be able to speak of God as a definite being, something like a man, but it is also necessary to speak of God as an entirely simple, inaccessible spirit. It is the old catch. In all the chapters of this book, two different conceptions are purposely united into one in order, in case of necessity, to exchange one for the other and making use of that mechanically to pick out all the texts of Scripture, and so mix them up, and that it shall be possible to blend what is discordant. After that follows a statement of the teaching of the Church, and as always, not the exposition of the dogma, not an explanation, not a discussion, 
but a controversy. The controversy is against the anthropomorphites and pantheists. It is argued that it is not true that God is clothed in flesh and is in everything like man. If the scripture speaks of his body, quote, we must by his eyes, eyelids, and vision understand his all-seeing power, his all-embracing knowledge, because through the senses of vision we obtain a fuller and more correct knowledge. By his ears and hearing we must understand his merciful attention and reception of our prayers, for even we, when we are asked, graciously incline our ear to the supplicants, showing them our favor by means of this sense. By his mouth and speaking we must understand the manifestation of God's will, for we too manifest our intimate thoughts by means of our lips and through speech. By his food and drink our argument with the will of God, for by means of the sense of taste we satisfy the necessary demands of our being. By smelling, the acceptance of our thoughts as directed toward God and of our hearty disposition, for by means of the sense of smell do we become aware of perfume. By his face we must understand his manifestation in his works, for our faces also manifest us. By his hands, his active force, for we, too, do everything useful, and especially everything costly with our own hands. By his right hand, his succor in just works, for we, too, in performing more noble and important deeds, such as demand a greater force, most generally make use of the right hand. By his touch, an exact knowledge and investigation of the smallest and the hidden, because those who are touched by us cannot conceal anything upon their bodies. By his feet and walking, his coming and appearance, in order to aid the needy or defend them against enemies, or to do some other act, even as we walk with our feet to some destination. By his oath, the inalterableness of his counsel, for between us two mutual agreements are confirmed by an oath by his anger and fury, his loathing and hatred of evil, for we, too, become angry and hate what is contrary to our will, by his forgetfulness, sleep and dreaming, his slowness in wreaking vengeance on his enemies, and his delaying his succor until the proper time." Unquote. These explanations and refutations of the anthropomorphists independently of the arbitrariness and unintelligibility of the explanations, as for example, why by food and drink is to be understood our agreement with the will of God, these explanations descend lower and lower into the sphere of petty, often stupid dialectics, and farther and farther does the hope recede of having the God-revealed truths explained. After this, in the 2D division, there are adduced the proofs of the fathers of the Church that God is an incorporeal, immaterial essence, and the same argument is continued. What is quoted is not the false, but the queer reasoning of the fathers of the Church which shows that the fathers of the church were far from that conception of God which is common with every believer at the present time. They take pains to prove, for example, 
that God is not limited by anything, or is not subject to suffering, or not subject to destruction, no matter how worthy the labors of these fathers have been in the time of struggle against the pagans, the statement that God is not subject to suffering has involuntarily the same effect upon us as would have the statement that God does not need any raiment or food, and proves that to a man who argues the indestructibility of God, the conception of the deity is not clear and not settled. It does not explain anything to us and only offends our feeling. But apparently the compiler needs it. Precisely what offends our feeling is what he needs, namely, the abasement of the idea of God. In the 3D division, the compiler quotes in the shape of a proof that invective which the fathers of the church uttered in defense of their opinion. Quote, in connection with this, it is important for us to notice that the ancient pastors, rebuking the errors of the anthropomorphists, called their opinion a senseless, most stupid heresy, and accounted the anthropomorphists who held this opinion as heretics. Unquote. And as the last argument of the church, the following is adduced. Quote, for this reason, we hear, among other things, in the order of orthodoxy, which the Orthodox Church performs in the first week of the Great Lent, the following words, Anathema on those who say that God is not spirit, but flesh. Unquote. That ends all we know about the substance of God, namely, that he is a spirit. What is the deduction from all that? that God is not an essence, but a spirit. All that results from the conception of God, and all believers cannot help thinking otherwise. This is partly confirmed by this article. But, in addition to that, we have the statement that this spirit is something special, separate, almost incomprehensible. In this verbal blending of the contradictions consists the subject matter of article 18 what the purpose is appears clearly from the following 18th article Quote, the idea of the essential properties of god their number and division the essential properties in god proprietates essentiales or in one word attributa perfectionis are such as belong to the divine essence alone and distinguish him from all other beings and so they are properties which are equally applicable to all the persons of the holy trinity who form one in their essence for which reason they are also called general divine properties in contradistinction to special or personal attributes proprietates personales which belong to each person of the deity, taken separately, and thus distinguish them among themselves." Unquote. It turns out that God, a simple spirit, has properties which distinguish him from all other beings. More than that, in addition to the general divine attributes, there are others which distinguish the same God in the three persons, though nothing has as yet been said about what the Trinity, 
and what a person is. Quote, it is impossible to define the number of essential or common properties of God. Though the Church, in giving us a sound idea about God, mentions some of these, God is a spirit, eternal, all-good, omniscient, all-just, almighty, omnipresent, unchangeable, all-sufficing to himself, all-blessed. It at the same time remarks that God's general properties are endless, for everything which is said in revelation about God, one in essence, in a certain sense forms the properties of the divine being. Consequently, we, following the example of the Church, shall limit ourselves to the analysis of some of them, the chief ones, such as more than any others characterize the essence of God and embrace or explain the other, less perceptible properties and such as are more clearly mentioned in the divine revelation. Unquote. The attributes are God are numberless, and so we are going to speak of some of them. But if they are numberless, a few of them are an infinitely small part, and so it is unnecessary and impossible to speak of them. But not so judge the theology, not only of some, but of the chief ones among them. How can there be a chief one in an endless number? All are equally infinitely small. Quote, we shall speak of such as more than any other characterize the deity. Unquote. Characterize how? God has a character, that is, the distinction of one God from others. No, it is clear that we are talking about something else and not about God. But let us proceed. Quote, In order to have distinct ideas about the essential properties of God, and to expound the teaching about them in a certain system, the theologians have since antiquity tried to divide them into classes, and of such divisions, especially in the medieval and modern period, many have been invented, and all of them, though not in the same degree, have their virtues and their defects. The main reason for the latter is quite comprehensible. The attributes of the divine being, like the essence itself, are entirely incomprehensible to us. Therefore, without making a vain attempt to find any one most perfect division of them, we shall select the one which to us appears most correct and most simple. Unquote. The properties of the essence of God, as well as the essence in self, are quite incomprehensible to us. Well, let us not scoff and talk of the incomprehensible. No. Quote, we shall select a division which to us will appear most correct. Unquote. Quote, God according to his essence, is a spirit. But in every spirit we distinguish, in particular, in addition to the spiritual nature proper, the substance, two main forces or faculties, mind and will. Unquote. 
How can there be the division into mind and will in a simple spirit? Where was that said? There was a general statement about the spirit, but there was nothing said about its having mind and will. Mind and will are words with which we, men, and only a few of us, distinguish in ourselves two activities. But why has God that? Quote, in conformity with this, the essential properties of God may be divided into three classes. One, into properties of the divine essence in general, that is, into such as belong equally to the spiritual nature, substance, of God, and to its two forces, to mind and will, and distinguish God as a spirit in general from all other beings. Two, into properties of the divine mind, that is, such as belong only to the divine mind. And finally, three, into properties of the divine will, that is, such as belonging only to the divine will. Unquote. Had I not better throw it all up? For is that not the delirium of an insane man? No, I said to myself that I would analyze strictly and thoroughly the whole exposition of the theology. Then follow sixty pages on the properties of God. Here are the contents of these sixty pages. Quote, the properties of the divine essence in general, God as a spirit, is distinguished from all other beings in general, in that they are all limited in their existence and in their forces, consequently more or less imperfect, while he is an unlimited spirit, or limitless, hence all perfect." Unquote. Quote, God is distinguished from all other beings in general. Unquote. This false conception of God as distinguished from all other beings is apparently needed because before and many times afterward and here it says that God is limitless and therefore it is impossible to say that the limitless can be distinguished from anything. Quote, in particular, all other beings, A, are limited in the beginning and during the continuation of their existence. All of them have received their existence through God and are in constant dependence on Him and partly on each other. God does not receive His existence from anybody and in nothing is He dependent on anybody. He is self-existing and independent. B. They are limited in the manner of form of their existence for they are inevitably subject to the conditions of space and time, and so are subject to changes. God is above all conditions of space. He is immeasurable and omnipresent. And above all conditions of time, He is eternal and unchangeable. C. Finally, they are limited in their strength, both in quality and in quantity. But for God there are no limits, even in this respect. He is all-powerful and almighty. Thus the chief qualities which belong to God in His essence in general are 1. Unlimitedness, or all-perfection 2. Self-existence 3. Independence 4. 
immeasurableness and omnipresence, five, eternity, six, unchangeableness, and seven, almightiness. Unquote. Then, God is distinguished from other beings in particular, quote, one, by his unlimitedness or all perfection, unquote. Why unlimitedness is equal to all perfection remains unexplained, both here and elsewhere. Quote, two, by his self-existence, and three, independence, unquote. What difference there is between self-existence and independence, again, remains unexplained. Self-existence is explained as follows, quote, God is called self-existent because he does not owe his existence to any other being, but has his existence and everything else which he has from himself. Unquote. His independence is explained on page 110 as follows, quote, Under the name of independence in God, we understand a quality by force of which he is in his essence and forces and actions determined only by himself and not by anything external, and he is self-satisfied, self-willed, self-ruled. This property of God results from the preceding. If God is a self-existent being, and everything he has he has through himself, that means that he is not dependent on anybody, at least not in his existence and powers." Unquote. Thus, in the first attribute of unlimitedness, there is attached to it, for some reason, the idea of all perfection, an unused and badly compounded word, which from its composition has an entirely different meaning from unlimitedness. But the words self-existence and independence which, according to the definition of the author himself, express the identical idea, are separated. 4. Immeasurableness, which is only a synonym of unlimitedness, is suddenly combined into one with omnipresence, which has nothing in common with that idea. Then, 5. Eternity and 6. Unchangeableness, are again separated, though they form one idea, for changeableness takes place only in time, and time is only the consequence of changeableness. 7. Almightiness, which is defined by the concept of unlimited force, though neither before nor later will there be anything said about force. But that is far from being all. We must remember that after the disclosure of the essence of God in himself, we have had disclosed to us the essential properties of God. Of the essential properties of God, there have now been disclosed to us the essential properties of God in general. We still are to get the disclosure of the properties, at first, of God's mind, and then of the properties of God's will. Quote, God's mind may be viewed from two sides, from the theoretical and from the practical side, that is, 
in itself and in relation to God's actions. In the first case we get the idea of one property of this mind, of omniscience, in the latter, of another, of the highest all-wisdom. God knows everything in himself. What else does he know if he has all-wisdom? On page 127 it says, quote, All wisdom consists in the completest knowledge of the best purposes and the best means, and at the same time in the fullest ability to apply the latter to the first. Unquote. The knowledge of the best purposes and means. But how can an unlimited, all-satisfied being have any purposes? And what concept of means can there be applied to an almighty being? But that is not enough. Quote, Holy Scripture defines in detail the subjects of the divine knowledge. It bears testimony in general to the fact that God knows everything, and in particular that he knows himself and everything outside of himself, everything possible and actual, everything past, present, and future. Unquote. Then, in parts, with quotations from Holy Scripture, the author proves that God knows a. everything, b. himself, c. everything possible, d. everything existing, e. the past, f. the present, g. the future. But God is outside of time, according to the theology, above time. So what past and future is there for him? And God is outside of space. He is an unlimited, limitless, omniscient being. How can there be anything outside of him? Quote, outside of, unquote, means beyond the limits, beyond the borders of something limited. I am not exaggerating, am not on the purpose expressing myself in a strange manner. On the contrary, I am using every effort to soften the wildness of the expressions. Read page 123 to 125. What am I saying? Open those two volumes anywhere and read them. It is all the time the same, and the farther you proceed, the more liberated from all laws of the connection of thoughts and words. Quote, 21. The will of God may be viewed from two sides, in itself and in relation to creatures. In the first case, it presents itself to us, A, in the highest degree, free according to its essence, and B, all holy in its free activity. In the latter, it appears, first of all, A, all good, since goodness is the first and chief cause of all divine acts in relation to all creatures, rational and irrational, then b, in particular, in relation to rational creatures only, true and correct, for it is revealed to them in the form of a moral law for their wills, and in the form of promises or moral incitements toward the performance of this law. Finally, c, all just, in so far as it watches the moral actions of these creatures and repays them according to their deserts. 
thus the chief properties of the will of god or more correctly the chief divine properties according to his will are one highest freedom two completest holiness three infinite goodness four completest truth and correctness and five infinite justice unquote. so it turns out that the limitless unlimited god is free and this is proved by texts and as always the texts show that those who wrote and spoke those words did not understand god and only approached a comprehension of him and spoke of a strong pagan god but not of the god we believe in Quote, i have made the earth the man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me jeremiah 27 verse 5 i will have mercy on whom i will have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion romans 9 verse 15 compare with exodus 32 verse 19 and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou daniel 4 verse 35 compare with job 23 verse 13 the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomever he will daniel four seventeen twenty five thirty two the king's heart is in the hand of the lord as the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will proverbs twenty one verse one are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father but the very hairs of your head are all numbered matthew ten twenty nine thirty c in the redemption of man having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by jesus christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will ephesians one verse five having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself ephesians one verse nine and christ the saviour gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of god and our father to whom be glory for ever and ever galatians one four and five d for our regeneration and purification all this is an account of the manifestations of god's freedom Quote, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures james one eighteen but the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit withal for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, by the same Spirit, 
but all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he will one corinthians twelve seven eight eleven Quote, the holy fathers and teachers of the church who in their writings mention the divine freedom in general frequently expressed their ideas with particular clearness in three cases a when they armed themselves against the ancient philosophers who affirmed that the universe was eternal and had sprung from god not by his will but of necessity as the shadow from the body or the glow from the light b when they refuted the errors of the pagans and certain heretics who asserted that everything in the universe and god himself were subject to fate and c when wishing to define wherein the image of god consisted in us they assumed it to be in man's free will in all these cases they pointed out that god was not subject to any necessity and quite freely determined himself toward actions that he had created in the beginning everything which he had wished and as he had wished and continued to do everything in the world only by his will and that he in general in his essence was self-willed indeed if god is a most perfect spirit and an independent and an almighty spirit our reason too must be conscious of the fact that god is free in the highest degree according to his essence freedom is a most essential property of a conscious spirit and he who is all-powerful and holds everything in his power himself not dependent on anything cannot be subject to necessity or compulsion Quote, two completest holiness Calling God holy, we profess that he is completely pure from all sin, that he cannot even sin, and in all his acts is entirely true to the moral law, and so he hates the evil and loves only the good in all his creatures. Unquote. The holiness consists in God's not sinning, and in his hating evil, and again a confirmation of this scoffing from Holy Scripture. Quote, 3. Infinite Goodness Goodness in God is a property by which he is always ready to confer, and actually does confer, as many benefits as each of the creatures is able to receive by its nature and condition. Unquote. End of Section 5 Recording by Laurie Arsenault Section 5 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology, An Investigation of the Christian Teaching, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Wiener, Chapter 4, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault.